0: A little bit about the Psalm and then we'll read it together. You know that the Book of Psalms covers the whole range of human experience and human emotion. Whatever the condition of our heart, however painful or delightful are our circumstances, we can always find something in the book of Psalms that puts into words how we feel. Psalm 103 is a psalm of pure praise. It is a glorious celebration of the grace of God. Someone's described it as a request-free zone. Very often the psalmist is crying to God for things, this time he is simply praising God. Probably it was written by David at the end of his life as he looks back and he reflects on the amazing goodness of the Lord. And he just wants to thank God and and bring together his praises with the praises of God's people and with the praises of the whole of creation and bring them to Almighty God. The psalm itself falls into three parts. There's a short beginning and a long middle and a short ending. And if you want to think of the psalm, think of it as kind of concentric circles. In the first five verses, we have personal praise. We'll read it in a moment. Verses 1 to 5 is personal praise. David speaks about what God has done for him personally. Then in verses 6 to 18, the circle goes wider and he speaks of God's grace to his people, the people of Israel. He looks back over their history. He goes back to the, the salvation that came when they crossed the Red Sea and came out of Egypt. All the way down through their history, how good God has been to his people Israel, even when they didn't deserve it. And then finally in the last bit from verse 19 to 22, David goes cosmic. The whole of the universe, everything that can be seen and everything that cannot be seen must praise God. All that he has made, the angels in heaven and people and everything. And then he comes back to himself, praise the Lord, O my soul. So you read this psalm, it's a request for his own. It's pure praise. It's a celebration of God's grace. It's a reminder this morning that God loves us and it moves out from the personal into the corporate, into the universal. Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As the Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone. Its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. This is the word of God. For over 30 years I was in established ministry in two local churches and uh, most of the time that I was doing that job I, I wanted to make my available myself available to the congregation so every Wednesday morning I had something that I rather grandly called a surgery between 9 o'clock and 12 o'clock people could turn up and they could ask for prayer they could ask for advice sometimes they just wanted me to to, to, to tell them what I thought about a particular situation but they could come they didn't need an interview they just uh, uh, an appointment rather they just turned up and came and, and opened their hearts On one occasion, there was a knock on the door, and in came a young man who was obviously very, very concerned. He looked as if he'd got the weight of the world on his shoulders. And I said, look, tell me, what's the problem? And he said, oh, pastor, you've got to help me. It's a terrible situation. I have just had the first argument with my wife. They'd been married for six months. I was surprised that it had taken them quite so long. (laughs) I knew his wife. So I said, I said, okay, okay. Tell me about it and 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 I'll tell you what what I think. So he told me, and it was actually no big deal. So I said, look, let me tell you what you do. You go home on the way, you stop, you get some flowers, you give her the flowers, you say, Darling, I love you. We can sort this out. I guarantee everything will be fine. He went off with a with a new spring in his step. I saw him on Sunday, I said, How did it go? He said, It was a disaster i did exactly what you said and she threw the flowers at me and i said well i don't get that tell me what tell me exactly he said well i did just what you did i got in the car i drove home i stopped at the garage i bought the second cheapest bunch of flowers but but no 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 they weren't grotty he said they were fine i went in i gave them to her and i said the pastor said that i should say to you i love you very much well (laughs) we kind of live and learn don't we i guess but actually, we need to be told that we are loved. That's, that's something in our hard wiring. It's something in our DNA. It's the way in which God has made us. Husbands need to tell their wives that they love them. Wives need to tell their, 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 their husbands. Parents need to tell their children. Children need to tell their parents. It's the way we're made. Because we're made in the image of God, and God is eternally love. Father, Son and Holy Spirit existing in an eternal relationship of love and we're made in the image of God. Most of all, most of all, we need to know that God loves us. Indeed, God delights that his children should know that he loves them. There's a great prayer if we'd read on in Ephesians into chapter 3. There's a great prayer at the end of Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul prays for the, for the Ephesian Christians that, that they may be filled with a knowledge of the sense of the love of God. How wide and high and deep and long it is. is it? The love that surpasses knowledge. God wants you to know his love so that you will be rooted and established in that love. And the simple message I want to bring you to this morning, if you want it in a simple sentence, is this. God loves you more than you could imagine, and he wants you to know it. God loves you more than you can imagine, and he wants you to know it. And you might say, well, did we really need to bring a man all the way from England to tell us something that is Christianity 101? You know, that's a bit simple, isn't it? Surely we know that in a in a great church like this. We know that. Well, yes, I'm sure you do. But do you really believe it? Do you really believe it? I meet Christians all the time who theologically are convinced that God loves them. In their lives, they're not quite so sure. They're living in kind of a a, 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 a situation where they think, well, if I did this, then I'll earn God's love. And if I step out of line, then God won't love me anymore. And if God loved me, why did he allow this thing to happen in my life? I'm a visitor this morning, so so I I know very few of you. I recognize one or two faces, but not many. Shall I tell you what I do know? What I do know is that there are a significant people, number of people in this church this morning who, who are struggling, struggling with all sorts of trials and troubles in their lives. How do I know that? Because I've been a pastor and I know that in a number of people like this, there will be some who are in real difficulties this morning. Maybe it's a real struggle to come to church. And when you shake people's hands at the door at whatever time the service finishes, you'll tell a lie because someone at the door will say to you, how are you doing? You'll say, I'm doing fine and your life is falling apart. This morning you need to know, Christian, that God loves you. Whatever you're going through, God loves you and he wants you to know it. And so to the psalm. This is a psalm of the celebration of God's love and the celebration of God's grace. As we said a moment ago, it's in concentric circles that kind of move outwards. Let's look first of all at verses 1 to 5. Here is David's personal praise. Verses 1 and 2 are four commands. Four commands. Look at verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name, praise the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. David gives a command, but I want you to notice, who is he speaking to? He is speaking to himself. Do you ever speak to yourself? Do you ever talk to yourself? Be honest. Actually, we, we kind of think that's a sign of insanity. In the Bible, speaking to yourself is often the first sign of sanity. Speaking the truth, speaking the truth of God's word into our hearts is a good thing. And that's what David does. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. It's almost as if he knows how heavy his heart can be. And he's kind of trying to get himself by the scruff of the neck and say, Come on, praise God, come on soul. Come on, step up to the plate, praise God. And don't just praise God superficially. Praise the Lord, all oh, my soul, all that's in me. My mind and my will and my emotions and my conscience and my imagination everything that I am, praise the Lord. And then just to be sure, he said it again in verse 2, praise the Lord, oh my soul, come on soul. Praise God, how can I be like that? How can I have such a praising heart? Well, the secret is given at the end of verse 2. Forget not all his benefits. How do we have a praising soul by constantly remembering God's blessings? The word benefit in Hebrew means something that you didn't deserve, something that you didn't gain, something that was given to you by pure grace. Remember the gifts that God has given you. Remember that old chorus we used to sing, remember your blessings, count your blessings, name them one by one. Do you remember? And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. I have a friend who works in a Bible college. And when his mom got to be 70 years of age, she decided to do something. She decided to record every day the blessings of God in her life. And so she went down to Woolworths. Did you ever have Woolworths up here? Yeah, well, it's a long time ago now. She went down to Woolworths and she bought a little notebook and every single day she wrote down one blessing. One thing that she remembered God had given to her in her life. And every day she wrote it, 365 days a year. When my friend visits her, she's in a rest home now, she's 83 years old, and the first thing that she says when he goes through the door is, I'm still writing down the blessings. Every day for 13 years she's been writing down blessings. Now she's 83, she may have repeated herself a few times, but you you don't argue with an 83-year-old lady. What a great thing, what a wonderful thing to remember his benefits. To remember what the Lord has done. Don't you find that sometimes Christians, and I'm sure it's not true here, but in the churches I minister in, it's kind of true. Christians are so miserable sometimes. Do you not find that? Yeah, you come to some churches and you think as they come through the door, they don't only get a, 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 a handbook, they get a lemon because they look as if they've been chewing one. You know, Christians just seem to love to talk about the problems and the, and the difficulties, whereas actually we should remember his blessings. The the, the way to a joyful heart is to reflect on the goodness of the Lord. And in verses 3 down to verse 5, David mentions five of them. Five blessings, just just look at them with me if you will. Verse 3, first of all, who forgives all your sins. That's a great place to start, isn't it? The God who forgives all your sins, that is the first fundamental fountainhead blessing of which every other blessing flows. God, the Holy One who hates sin because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, has forgiven my sins. Isn't it great to be a Christian today? You can say yes if you like isn't it wonderful to know to know that your sins are forgiven that that some will develop that even further on but it's no surprise that when david personally thinks of god's blessing the first thing that grips his heart is the forgiveness of sin david was the man after god's own heart he was also the great example of a man who failed in the old testament one day in his 40s he's standing on his roof he sees this woman she's exceptionally beautiful she's also exceedingly vulnerable and he takes her He takes her into his home and then there is a kind of a progress of sin from immorality to deception to murder. And and when his sin begins to rest upon his shoulders and he begins to see it for what it is, he writes some of those psalms, Psalm 51 for example, and he describes the immense weight of sin. It's like a, a little flower that, that, that withers in, in, in the sun and his whole soul feels like this little withering, withering flower. The weight of sin is so heavy upon him. My bones are broken. and I, I mean, such a burden. And then he hears the voice of God, your sins are forgiven. And he writes Psalm 32, Oh, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. In Hebrew, oh, how blessed and blessed and blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, God has taken them away. Oh, Christian, if God did nothing else for you today except for forgiving your sins, you should leave this place with a song in your heart, shouldn't you? He forgives our sins. Wonderful. Number two, he heals all our diseases. Well, that's a little bit more tricksy, isn't it? Is that literally true? Can we kind of go to God, whatever our problem is, and ask him to, to, forgive, our, uh, uh, to forgive our sins and to heal our disease? Is that the way it works? My wife has been very seriously ill with, with a, a disease very similar to multiple cirrhosis for about 21 years now. Uh, most of the time she's in a wheelchair. We, we have nights where all night we're, we're, we're struggling with pain. we prayed over and over that the Lord might take that from us and so far he said no. From time to time we've had well-meaning people and usually they're well-meaning and they come and they say, well, God has told me to tell you, you need to pray a bit more. You need to have a bit more faith. You know, he heals all our diseases remember one Saturday night, there was a knock on the door, and there was a man there, and he came in, and he said, look, I, I have a message directly from God just for you. And I kind of thought, well, I wish God had told me personally, but never mind, what is it? He said, the only reason that your wife is sick is that there is secret sin in your ministry. Now, I, I prayed about that. I think, I think when, when trials come, we should ask the question, is there sin, is God trying to get my attention? And I was, there was nothing I could see. So I said, look, I, I've prayed about it. I, I think you're wrong. And he looked in great consternation because he got the message from God. So he said, well, I may have got it slightly wrong. Maybe there's no sin in your life. Maybe it's a secret sin in your wife's life. That's when I hit him. I didn't, no, I didn't. But I was sorely tempted. I've got to say that that kind of theology is exceedingly unhelpful and it's exceedingly unbiblical. So what does a verse like this mean? Well, it does mean, for example, that God can heal us. Very often in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, when people sinned, sickness was the result and, and forgiveness led to healing. God can heal us, but God doesn't promise to heal us completely ever in this life. Even people who are healed in this life one day get sick again, Lazarus had to die again. There is a hope, ultimately, of complete healing. My wife hasn't walked for properly for, for 20 years. My daughter, who's 21 years old, has never seen a mom walk. She's never seen a mom run. One day, my wife will have a brand new body. Because of the work of Christ on the cross, she will be completely healed. We have a little uh, little arrangement that when we get to heaven and she 's got a new body and i 've got a new body we 're going to find one another i don 't know how we will, but we will and we 'll dance together, which is quite amazing because i 've never danced with anybody any time in my whole life, but in heaven you get to do all sorts of things. Can God heal? Yes, he does. Does he promise to do it now no he doesn 't here 's the third thing: He was the one who uh, redeems our life from the pit he takes us out of the pit. Do you know, ultimately, we, we, we end up in a pit. This can be symbolic, of course. You know, we, we dig a pit, we make mistakes, we find ourselves in all sorts of circumstances. But in the end, every one of us is going to end up in a pit in the ground. If we're buried anyway, we will be. It'll be about six foot that way and about two foot that way, and I don't know how deep it'll go. And that's where we're going. Life always, inevitably, unless Christ returns, ends in death. But David says there's a hope beyond death. The pit, the grave, is not The end. As Christians, we have a glorious hope. One day, he will raise us from the ground. Isn't that wonderful today? A hope that is certain and sure and of which we can be absolutely confident. I was listening to a tape recently of a pastor in America and he'd gone to a particular ward. It was a cancer ward and there was a young man in that particular ward who was dying of cancer. Only in his 20s, Christian young man and and, and there was no hope and so the pastor went to visit him and they were talking together and they were going through the funeral. And the man said, I want very clear instructions. When when it comes to the funeral, no one is to wear black. We're to sing joyful songs and we're to testify to the fact that Christ is risen. I want it to be a joyful time. And and they prayed about it and then the pastor got up to leave and the nurse in charge of the ward called him into the little sluice room. She said, "I I need to talk to you about this young man. I'm really, really worried. Everyone in this ward, it's a terminal ward, everyone's dying and they all know it, but he doesn't know he's dying. He doesn't know it, and, and, and the pastor said, "What do you mean he doesn't know? Well, he just doesn't know it. He's, he's not reacting like someone who's dying." And the pastor said, "Well, he does know. We've just been planning his funeral." And the woman said, "How can that be true? Well, if, if that's the case, and he is dying, he's certainly most unsuitably joyful. <laughs> Isn't that a great phrase? Unsuitably joyful. listen to me, death is not something that we want, but beyond death is the grave, is the grave, and beyond the grave is the resurrection." And the great hope that we have as Christians. The death is, the pit is not the end. He will raise us. Moving on quickly. He redeems my life from the pit. He crowns me with love and compassion. Verse 4. He satisfies my soul with good things. He is a God who utterly and totally satisfies us. All the blessings of God come to us through Jesus Christ. We've just got a few of them there. That was David's experience. That's our experience this morning. We should be joyful people because of what God has done in our lives. I preach very often up in Birmingham in a, in a church that consists primarily of converted Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs. It's a wonderful place. I love going to this church. They have a men's meeting once, uh, once a month and I very often go to the men's meeting. It, it, it starts at about 7 o'clock in the evening and it goes on until about 10 o'clock we eat and then we sing and then we pray and then I speak and then we eat a bit more and we sing a bit more and we pray a bit more and they say can you speak again please and I think okay you know two for the price of one and then we eat a bit more and then we but the thing that strikes me most of all is is the way in which these guys sing I'm got a clue what they're singing in most of it, it's Urdu but it's just one and you look at them and they are just so full of joy and I said to the pastor once I said you know I just love coming here I love seeing your guys singing Uh, And he said, oh, they do love singing. They really do. And I said, Judgey, why why do they love singing so much? And he said, well, in Islam, they never sang. And in Hinduism, they never sang. And and then they become Christians, they become singers. I said, that's amazing, isn't it? Why didn't they sing in Islam? He said, that's very simple. If you're a Muslim, you've got nothing to sing about. If you're a Hindu, you've got nothing to sing about. But the moment you come to Christ and you know him as Savior and Lord, God puts a song within your heart. That's the personal praises of David. What a full and glorious gospel he's experienced. Can I say this morning, and I'm a visitor so I don't know anybody here hardly, are you a Christian this morning? Have you experienced this gospel? Have you come to know this saviour for your own saviour? Notice this is personal. Personal. David is speaking about a personal relationship. He has forgiven my sins. He's given me a hope beyond the grave. He's the one I can trust. He's the one who will one day raise me from the pit. He crowns me with love and compassion. He does all those things for me. Can you say this morning that that's true of me? Can you quite simply say this morning, "I, I, I know I'm imperfect, but I know God has forgiven my sins. Well, if you can say that, you're a Christian. If you can't say that, And even this morning, you need to do something about it. wouldn't be wonderful this morning to come into the experience of David. That's his personal experience. Then we move to the second section of the psalm, verse 6 down to verse 18. And we move from the singular now to the plural. He begins to speak about God's blessings for the people of God. And it's a particular people. This isn't God's blessing for the whole world. This is God's blessing for the people who belong to him. So in verse 11 and verse 13 and verse 17, he used the little phrase, those who fear him. Those who fear him, those who fear him. In verse 18, he describes them as God's covenant people. Those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. These are the blessings that God has for his people. And they're the blessings of grace. If you look through this chapter or this section, what you have here is what someone has described as a kaleidoscope of grace the reluctance of God's anger the generosity of God's mercy the magnitude of God's love the completeness of God's forgiveness the tenderness of God's compassion the intimacy of God's kindness and the dependability of God's faithfulness now if you're taking notes did you get that probably not let me try and simplify it David here speaks about the grace of God as both past and present and future The experience of Israel throughout its history was of God's past guiding grace. The whole history of Israel was a history of grace. They deserved judgment, they received mercy, not once or twice, but over and over and over again. And when he reflects on their past history in verse 6 down to verse 12, that's the great theme. Look, if you will, at those verses. Look at verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. That's probably referring to the the oppressed people in Egypt who cried to God and God delivered them. That great act of salvation in the Old Testament, God brought them out of Egypt. He delivered his people. That was an act of grace, it was an act of salvation. Verse 7, what else did he do? He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. He gave them his word, in other words. Do you know, Christian, the most precious physical possession in the whole universe is this book? Don't you love the Bible? Don't, you, don't you, you love to open this book because you know it's the Word of God? God spoke. He spoke on the mountain. Later in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, what nation is like the nation of Israel? They have the very words of God. In the New Testament, it says that all Scripture is God-breathed. I was saying to the folk at the convention a, a, a couple of days ago, a few years ago as, as a preacher, I was having some problems with my voice. And in the congregation, we had an opera singer. Have you ever heard of Anne Lindstrom? I'm sure some of you have heard of Anne. Anne, she's a Scottish lady. And brilliant singer. And uh, after the service, she said, Pastor, you're struggling with your voice, aren't you? And I said, a a, a bit of a problem. She said, I I can help you. I, i tell you what your problem is. It's your breathing. You're not breathing, but I can teach you to breathe. I was in my 80s. I thought I was doing okay up until that point. But, you know, she gave me some exercises. Do you know what it meant? It meant now that I can breathe in such a way that I can preach for hours and hours and hours. Aren't you glad? But this is what I learned. There's an intimate connection between words and breath. And in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, All Scripture, Old and New Testament, 66 books, all of them are God-breathed. Not that human beings wrote this very intelligent book and then God kind of uses it from time to time. No, no. These words are the very words of God. What a blessing that was for the nation of Israel. What a blessing it is for us today. And then he goes on. Look at verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. That was the moment those words were revealed in the Old Testament at the moment when Israel had committed its greatest sin. They'd come to Mount Sinai and they'd promised to be faithful to God. And then while Moses is in the mountain, they're out on the plain and they're worshipping an idol and they're bowing down to an idol and and, and Moses comes down and it looks for a moment as if Israel are going to be obliterated. But God chooses to have mercy. And then in, in Exodus 33, Moses says to God, Oh God, show me your glory. God says, you can't see my glory and live, but I'll hide you in a rock. Do you remember the story, end of Exodus 33? And Moses is hidden in a rock, and then the glory of God descends. And what's the glory of God? Do you remember? The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abundant in mercy. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is amazing. Amazing compassion and mercy to sinners. Come with me to the New Testament. They take the Lord Jesus Christ and they lead him up Calvary's hill and they strip him naked and they throw him to the ground and they drive nails through his hands and his feet and then they lift him up between heaven and earth. And as you stand there looking at him, he looks less than human. He's bruised, the spittle running down his face there's blood everywhere he looks more like a dog than a human being it is a place of extreme shame the romans waited uh, the romans reserved crucifixion for the most terrible criminals it's a place of extreme shame it's a place of degradation and yet how does jesus refer to the cross when he is crucified this is the moment of his glorification Where do we see the glory of God most supremely? Not in the heavens and the stars, but in the cross of Christ. There we see the compassion and the grace and the mercy of God. Just in a few minutes when we come around the Lord's table, we will be seeing in these emblems that glorious, glorious fact that God loved us so much to send his son to die for us. Look at the next verses. They they refer also to to God's grace. He will not always accuse or harbour his anger forever, verse 9. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Very often as Christians, we, we kind of think God is just waiting for us to step out of line and then he's going to zap us. That's the kind of thinking we have. God isn't like that, he says. God isn't, doesn't behave that way. As, far as, the, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed His tra- our transgressions from us. They don't belong to us anymore. They're over there. They're behind His back. He can't see them anymore. When God blots out your sin, He remembers it no more. Oh, excuse me. Hallelujah. Isn't that great today? To know that God doesn't want you to remember what He's chosen to forget. My oldest son, when he, he had a little room, we, we, it was our dining room, but, but, but he wanted his own room, so it was a tiny little room. We said, you can have that as a, as a bedroom. And he said, can I, can I decorate it however I want? And we said, yes. That was stupid, because he painted it black. Every wall, the ceiling, everything black. And then on the ceiling, he painted in fluorescent paint the stars. He, he loved to look at the stars, so he painted the stars on the ceiling. When he left home, my wife said, I want my dining room back, and you're going to paint it. You gave him permission, you paint it. So, so I did. <laughs> And I painted it three, four, five times. Eventually I got rid of the black paint, but I couldn't get rid of the stars. They were still there. So when I took my wife in there and we put on a candle and we had a candlelit romantic dinner, the stars came out. (laughs) So maybe I've got something to thank my son for, I don't know. But do you know, when God blots out your transgressions, there's no memory. There's no record. Your transgressions are gone forever. Christian, God doesn't want you to remember what he's chosen to forget. That's past grace. Look at present grace from verse uh, verse 13 down to verse 14. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. When the Bible talks about God's fatherhood, it very often speaks about all sorts of things. It speaks about his protection and his care and his provision, his guidance, sometimes his discipline. But here it speaks about the tenderness and the intimacy and the sympathy of a father's heart. Father-like, he tends and cares us. Well, our feeble frame, he knows. We'll go down tomorrow, God willing, to see our new granddaughter. Just over a year ago, we went to see our her, her sister. Her sister's called Avena. We went to see her when Avena was about uh, uh, 24 hours old, I think she was. She was about this size, about the size of a hedgehog. In fact, fact, with a little spiky hair, she looked like a hedgehog. And uh, Matt is a great big Welshman, a great big Welshman. And and so my daughter, Kes, she's holding this tiny little scrap of life. And she says, Matt, take a venner. And she lifts up this little hedgehog. And and Matt is this great big Welshman, comes across with a kind of a mixture of adoration and anxiety. And he, he takes this little life and he puts it into the crook of his arm. And he looks at her. And as he looks at her, I look at him and I think, poor bloke, he's had it. That's it. He's fallen in love. That's, that's, that's it. He's never going to escape that now. He's, he's always going to be there. He's always going to love her. Whatever she does, he'll always love her. He'll always remember that tender moment when she first came into the crook of his arm. When she takes her first step, he'll be there. When she speaks her first word, it'll probably be daddy. He'll probably have that bittersweet experience. You know what it's like men, when you have to go down the aisle and give your, your daughter away? It's not easy to do that. One of my friends described it like that going down the, the aisle with my beautiful daughter, it was like taking a vintage, priceless Stradivarius violin and putting it into the hands of a gorilla. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's what it felt like. But she, you see, he will remember that little child. He will never stop loving her. And that's the love of a her father here. Tenderly, he remembers us. He remembers that we're dust. You know, we have this idea of God that he's harsh and hard and judgmental and just waiting for his children to fail. He's not like that. That's not the God of the Bible to his people. Oh, if you sin, he'll chasten you. Yes, he will. But he'll never stop loving you. He'll never stop loving you. That's his present grace. What about future grace? Look at verses 15 uh, down to verse 18. Uh, As for man, his days are like the grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field. The wind blows over and it's gone and it plays. place remembers it no more. That's what human life is like. He said it's here for a moment and then the wind blows. It's gone. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. (laughs) We're here for a moment like the blink of an eye, but God is here loving us forever and ever. And notice when did God begin to love us Everlastingly. And when will he stop loving us? Never. It goes into everlasting. When they asked the great theologian Augustine what was God doing in eternity, he rather sniffily replied, preparing a place of punishment for people who ask too many questions. But actually, actually, the Bible says that there were two things God was doing in eternity. Before he created the world, before he created anything, before anything else existed, before men and, and, and angels or anything else, there was two things God was doing. First of all, the Father was loving the Son in an eternal love joined together by the Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in an eternal, loving relationship. The Father loved the Son in a peerless, eternal love. That's the first thing he was doing. The second thing he was doing is that he was loving you. Christian, he had set his heart upon you in eternity. You were chosen in Christ. We read it this morning from Ephesians. When? Before the foundation of the world. He had planned in eternity to send his son to die so that you would be redeemed. That is his eternal love. And it came into time and it came into the moment when you first uh, trusted in Christ and it will reach into eternity. You're a child of God and nothing will ever separate you from his love. You know a little boy who was asked to define home. What is home? And he wrote, Home is a place that when you get there they've got to let you in. That's great, isn't it? Home is a place that when you get there, they've got to let you in. And we belong to God. We're His children. Heaven is our home. His love is from everlasting to everlasting. If He loved you before time, if He loved you enough to give Christ for you, if He loves you to seal you with His Spirit, do you think He'll ever stop loving you, Christian? No, no, no. If you sin, He'll chasten you, and it won't be comfortable. I used to chasten my boys particularly, and, and, and when they were crying, and I, 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 I dealt with them, and, and I won't tell you how I dealt with them, because I might get shot, but you know, when I dealt with them, I'd say, now, now now let me ask you, why did Daddy do it? Why did he punish you? And they'd sit on my lap, and they'd say, it's because you love us, <laughs> and you want us to be the best little boys we can be. I'm not sure they believed it then, but they believe it now, I think. And we don't like it when God chastens us, but it is never in a harsh, judgmental way. It's because he loves you. And his love will never cease. That was the experience of Israel. That's the experience of God's people. Well, time has gone. Look at verses 19 to 22. Let's look at the whole world in two minutes. Here is universal praise. Praise the name of the Lord, his angels. Verse 20, you mighty ones who do his bidding, obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. The whole of the universe is to praise God. All his angels, those messengers, those mighty ones, those great and glorious beings. If an angel was to appear here this morning, we would be tempted to worship it. It would be so magnificent and, and spellbinding and glorious. And yet what do angels do? They just just delight to worship God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What about the creation? Look at verse 22. Praise the Lord all his works. In one of the other Psalms, it speaks of all his works, the sun and the moon and the shining stars, the the highest heavens and the earth beneath, sea creatures, lightning, hail, snow, clouds, stormy uh, winds, mountains and hills, small creatures, flying birds, kings of the earth, all nations, princes, rulers of the earth, young men, maidens, old men and children. Praise the Lord. The whole of creation is designed for worship. Some of you go to work tomorrow and people say, well, what did you do at the weekend? And, and they'll either be very excited or they'll be very depressed tomorrow, won't they? I'm pretty sure. At the moment, Andy Murray's still British. Tomorrow morning, he'll be a Scotsman, or maybe. I don't know. And when they say, to you, well, what did you do? Did you, watch, did you watch the gate? No, I was at church. I was at a prayer meeting. And they will look at you as if you are totally insane. But Actually, you are doing what the whole creation was designed to do. You are in step with the creation. They're not. You are. The whole of creation was designed to worship Almighty God. And when we worship God, we are doing that for which we're created. We're doing that for which God made us. So the psalm ends on exactly the same note in which it began. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Come on, soul. Praise Him in worship and then go out and give your life as a living sacrifice. The worship of 24-7. But praise God with a heart that is full of praise because you are delighted in the gospel. Are you delighted in the gospel this morning? If you are, you'll do everything you possibly can to bring people to the mission that's just coming up. One last story, we, we had a lady in our home just uh, about a year ago, maybe 18 months ago, and she'd been coming to our church for a little while and, and she'd come under conviction of sin and she said, I, I just need to come and talk to you. And so we, we spent a couple of days talking to her, one day and then another day, and eventually she came to Christ. She came in our front room to know, to know the Lord. And then she went home and she, she got home she thought, now what do I do next? I've just become a Christian. I, I know, I'm going to tell everybody. So for the next three hours, she took out her her phone book, personal address book, and she rang everybody on the phone book. She rang her family. They were flabbergasted. She rang people at the church. They were delighted. She rang kind of acquaintances. They thought she was mad. Three hours. I don't know how much it cost her, but but, there you go. She was just full of joy. And then she said, oh, boy, am I hungry. So she went down to the fish and chip shop. And she stood in the queue in the fish and chip shop, and, and she comes to the man, she thinks, well you know I, I just want to tell him as well so she she said to the man serving you know can i tell you i've just become a christian jesus is my savior he said oh that's exciting i'll give you two pieces of fish so so you know don't try this at home but you know when we're first saved, there is that joy isn't there? that delight it's just great to be a christian forget not all his benefits Come on, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And if you want to bless the Lord, you want to tell the world as well of this wonderful Saviour. Amen. Well, we're going to stand together and sing.